0: From the Schmoes No Network Studios in Los Angeles, California, it's time for Profiles with your hosts, Alicia Malone and Scott Mance.
1: Hello, Hello, Schmoville! Schmoville. Welcome to episode three of Profiles with Malone and Mance. I'm the Malone.
2: And I'm the Mance. And finally, (laughs) finally, we're going to talk about one of our favorite directors of all time, Stanley. Stanley Kubrick.
1: I am so excited about this. We get to geek out about one of our favorite filmmakers for about an hour, maybe even longer if we can push it. Why would you say he is one of the most visionary filmmakers of all time?
2: Well, that is a load of question that we're gonna answer <laughs> over the next hour. Tell me now. Maybe more, but <laughs> since you asked, listen, this is a filmmaker who's who's very mysterious, reclusive. A lot of people say he's he's a perfectionist, demanding. Obviously, his 13 films that he directed 13 movies. They are all completely different. They are all beautifully shot. They all hold up under repeated viewings to the point where you get something else out of it every time you watch it. But what does it, why is Kubrick your jam?
1: He is my jam for sure, because he can tackle any genre. And he does, he tried all different genres and each one, as you said, was perfection because of the level of detail. He did intense research for every single film. There is so much to look at in his movies everything is intentional and i do like that he's he was a bit of an enigma it's hard to say an enigma an enigma because he was reclusive and we didn't know too much about him and then that led to some really interesting conspiracy theories
2: oh yeah we're going to get into that in this episode of profiles this is going to be a fun one but you know you mentioned how he's an enigma mm-hmm. and about how not a lot of people really knew him did he even know himself mm. i don't know but our friend the pit boss Is going to shed some light on the situation. Who is Stanley Kubrick anyway?
1: Let's listen to our It's a Wonderful Life. Take it away, Ken.
0: Stanley Kubrick was born on July 26, 1928 in the Bronx in New York City to his father, Jack, and mother Sadie. When he was 12, he developed a lifelong obsession with chess, but it was the following year that his life would change forever. His father gave him a camera, and at the age of 17, he became an apprentice photographer for Look Magazine. Kubrick directed his first feature, Fear and Desire, in 1953. And up until the time of his death at the age of 70, he would come to direct some of the greatest movies of all time. Yet, despite being nominated by the Academy for Best Director four times, he never won an Oscar in that category. At least he's in good company, since Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, and Charlie Chaplin also never won Best Director Oscars. Kubrick is survived by three children and his wife, Christiane Kubrick. I can't, How is that possible?
1: I have no idea and it's it's unbelievable when you look at the standard of his movies that he never won a best director Oscar at all and he should have won one for his production design he's like Cinematography, I think because he came from a photography background, that's why he has some of the most memorable films and the memorable movie moments in those movies.
2: Well, also, when you look at some of the directors today, like Christopher Nolan, David Fincher, mm-hmm. these are directors who absolutely, just look at their body of work, are deserving of a Best Director Oscar, and they haven't won yet. Yeah. Yet, but for the, for the love of God, for Stanley Cooper, 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey, to not How? win an <laughs> Oscar for directing that movie...
1: I don't get it.
2: It seems insane. what was, in our segment we like to call First Blood, mm-hmm. what was your first blood? What was your first Stanley Kubrick movie?
1: My first Stanley Kubrick movie was 2001, A Space Odyssey. I didn't see that till I was a teenager. And I wanted to check it out because of all the pop culture references and other things, especially The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. They would always make fun of Stanley Kubrick movies. They were huge Kubrick fans. So I saw 2001. I didn't get it at all. I may have pretended that I did, but I totally didn't understand. There was the apes, and then suddenly you're in space, and then the monolith. I didn't know what was going on, but I definitely appreciated the special effects. Even though I saw it in the 80s, it still looked fantastic, and it still does today.
2: The special effects are amazing, but when you see see all the pop cultural references on a movie like 2001 in other places, Mm -hmm. and then you go to the source... When you go to the source and watch a movie like that, you're like, oh. I get it. Now I get it. What
1: was your first blood?
2: Okay, Leash, check this out. My first Stanley Kubrick movie was in 1980, the year The Shining came out. My parents, in their infinite wisdom, (laughs) took a. 12 year old kid, this guy, to see The Shining, what the hell were they thinking? I'm
1: surprised you're not damaged you're very upbeat
2: well well just just keep that in mind but every time for years after the fact when I would watch The Tonight Show and and Ed McMahon would say here's Johnny I would go ha!" Ah, ah, <laughs> because that movie was traumatizing Absolutely. I didn't sleep for months
1: so, so traumatizing
2: that was my first Kubrick movie whoa well
1: now Jate always joins us in the control room and I know you are a huge Kubrick fan do you remember your first
4: Wow, my first, I would probably have to say, I, I think it was 2001 Space yeah. yeah. and I had a friend whose father was from London, and we would go over his house and watch movies, and he brought it out, and I, I always describe it as a hypnotizing film, because I don't, don't know exactly what's happening, but I can't take my eyes off the screen.
1: It's true, yeah. that is very true. It took me ages to figure it out, and I'm, I think I'm still figuring it out. I, I have love.
2: it down, and I will tell you what this movie's about later in the show later okay later well, in the show let's get
1: into our fast five with our fifth favorite kubrick movie which is Jate. what is your major malfunction numbnuts Oh, Whoa, full Metal Jacket. Full
2: Metal Jacket. Oh,
1: 1987, this was a, a war film, and I really love Full Metal Jacket because it shows the different facets and the different horrors of being a Marine. Right. You've got the boot camp, which is insane. I can't imagine someone yelling <laughs> <laughs> those insults at me. I would probably cry. <laughs> then you've got the boredom of war, and then finally the horrors of war and the confusion of war.
2: This really is two movies in one, and mm. they're both mesmerizing, riveting, totally engrossing and and the the boot camp scene, the boot oh. camp uh, se- sections, I got to say a lot of people feel like that's the better part of the film and it's hard to top that because of Ardley Army's performance as Sergeant Hartman. Yes. So incredible. What a great character. I mean, he is just shouting insults the entire time.
1: Yeah, and did you know he wrote most of those insults himself. You know, Kubrick was very particular about his own scripts and rarely would he let anyone else write them. Oh, but sure, yeah. after R. Le- Ermie Lee, Lee Ermi, after he auditioned for the role, he was originally supposed to be just a technical advisor, but then he auditioned and he just flung insults at a group of extras and they sh- showed how... how brutal he could be then he wrote 150 pages worth of insults about half of those end up in the film
2: and he got the job yes but so many great scenes in this movie i mean who can forget the scene in the latrine uh, just before they cut to the to vietnam when uh, vincent d'onofrio as a private pile Mm. is has lost his mind and he's sitting there with his fully loaded rifle full metal jacket Mm -hmm. and then uh, sergeant hartman comes in and says that line that we just heard what is your major malfunction and Boom! And then turns the gun on himself Ugh. in front of a of, uh, private joker.
1: Yeah, who yeah. was played brilliantly by, by Matthew, Matthew Modine. And we will be talking to him a little later on. It was also that role was supposed to go to Anthony Michael Hall. Anthony which Michael been Hall. Interesting, but negotiations broke down after eight months. And uh, Kubrick apparently also offered a role to Bruce Willis.
2: But what role was it?
1: I have no idea, but he had to turn it down because of Moonlighting. Oh, but I wow. loved Matthew Modine <laughs> in that role. I loved Vincent in his role. He put on 70 pounds to play Private Pile, broke the record because... Uh, I think uh, De Robert De Niro put on 60 pounds for, for a 60? raging
2: bull yeah exactly wow but this another great scene in this movie you know the second part of the film with the sniper it's just oh. so intense and then when you finally see that the sniper is a woman yeah it just really just hits home it's really really great
1: well we asked Schmoville for some uh, responses to Full Metal Jacket and Max Ants Vincent says it has to be the best Vietnam war movie in my opinion the boot camp part is amazing even the second half I liked a lot for me it's a perfect film
2: well rachel j cushing our friend from schmivel said the first time i saw full metal jacket i remember being truly frightened by what i was watching you're not the only one Uh, i had only ever seen school heroic world war ii movies up to that point Mm -hmm. it was the first film for me that showed the psychological and emotional impact of war culture and now in a weird way i find the film incredibly Moving. Well, Mm, Rachel, that's a very interesting observation.
1: All right. So Kubrick has given us many memorable scenes. Definitely. So, in The Right Stuff, I'm going to talk about my favorite scene which is really hard to choose because there are so many great scenes in kubrick films but i'm gonna go with the tricycle scene in the shining yeah you'll notice that i am wearing the apollo 11 t-shirt very similar to danny's and he was on the tricycle the camera is following him as he races around the overlook hotel i love the sound in that section how he goes from running on the rolling on the carpet to rolling on the Boards the and four, then back yeah. to the carpet again. I also love how the camera goes behind him because it just elevates that sense of dread. You do not know what's around the corner, and you're expecting something around every corner, and, and then suddenly <laughs> the twins. Oh, hello,
2: Danny! Come play
1: with us. Come
2: play with us oh, forever.
1: So terrifying. And ever and ever and that sticks in my mind and even though now i know exactly when they're going to show up i still get scared
2: it's still scary even after all these years right yeah and you're right the sound of when he's when he's riding and it goes from the the smoothness of the (laughs) rug to the the sound of the hardwood floors it's just like like every little thing about that scene just builds builds the intensity
1: it does it does out Hit me with some trivia. You
2: want some trivia? You want the last detail? Yeah, that's what we're gonna call it. The last our trivia detail, trivia now. Alicia Malone. Yes, that's a, I that's an exclusive. Our trivia con, uh, the part is going to be called the last detail. Yep. Speaking of The Shining, now you know the movie Toy Story three. Uh huh. Okay, the director of that film, Lee Unkrich, is apparently obsessed with The Shining. Oh. He's here's this movie Toy Story three which is just a wonderful film, one of the best animated movies of the last 25 years, and its director is obsessed with The Shiny. He runs a website called theoverlookhotel.com, which is updated all the time with news, with unreleased photos, and with all these fan-made one-sheets and images. People were so inspired by The Shining that there's a website dedicated to it. It's the overlookhotel.com. Check it out.
1: Well, I think I remember reading that inside Toy Story 3, there are some hidden 237s.
2: Oh, no kidding.
1: Number plates and things. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, Schmoeville, tell us if you've spotted any. That's really interesting.
2: Now I have to go back and watch Toy Story 3. Well,
1: did you know tell that me, tell Eyes me. Wide Shut has a Guinness World Record for the longest constant movie shoot 400 days it took to shoot that film.
2: 400 days Uh to shoot Eyes Wide Shut. A movie that you didn't really love. No. I
1: don't know (laughs) if it was worth 400 days. But anyway, the cast was going a little bit crazy. Needless, he said. Well, I I
2: like that movie a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why shortly. But did you know... That the footage at the beginning of the shining yeah when when they're they're flying over glacial national park montana montana and they're playing that wah, 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 yep. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. i mean that music is so scary but stanley cooper shot so much of that footage that went wound up not being used so when ridley scott was making Blade Runner Mm in 1982, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. The original ending of that film had a lot of aerial footage that was not used by Stanley Kubrick. And, and he used it? And he used it. But keep in mind, this was in the original cut of Blade Runner when right. he released the director's cut 10 years later. That tacked-on ending was chopped off and that footage we don't see anymore.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, Kubrick has another Guinness World Record. What's that? It is for the greatest number of takes for a scene with dialogue. 127 takes Which of one? Shelley Duvall in The Shining Swinging a Bat. At Jack Nicholson.
2: So when 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 they're going up the steps, right? Uh-huh. And she's backing up,
1: get away from me, get away from me. I mean, apparently he pushed her to the edge.
2: You could see that.
1: Yeah, she was going a little bit crazy by the end.
2: But you could see that in the documentary, mm-hmm. Stanley Cooper, Life in Pictures, which is a great documentary yeah, if you're a
1: cubic fan you should watch it it's like two hours and 20 minutes of heaven and
2: it came out in 2001 <laughs> yeah. as it should but yeah that's where jack nicholson goes uh, wendy it's okay i just want to bash your brains in
1: oh, oh it's so great well that so leads great. us nicely to the number four movie in our fast five jeté
5: here's johnny
2: <gasps>
5: like i
1: said Terrifying. you
2: hear that and you just cannot imagine watching the tonight show with johnny carson the same way again
1: for years i love how that line is improvised too by jack nicholson
2: he improvised that line. yeah no kidding
1: and it's one of the most famous lines from any kubrick film
2: so that line was improvised yet it took them three days to shoot that scene oh my gosh. and <laughs> and <laughs> they went through more than 60 doors until he got it just right.
1: Oh, God, yeah. you got to get everything right on a Kubrick film. This came out in 1980. It's a psychological horror. And horror was a genre that Kubrick was really interested in. He always wanted to make his own horror. He actually pitched to make The Exorcist. But they said no because he wanted to produce it as well as direct it and have complete control. So they said, no, forget about it. So he decided that he wanted to make a movie that would terrify everyone. The Shining did it. I find this so scary just because of the images the things you see in this movie do not leave your head
2: no they really don't there's so many great scenes in this film uh obviously the one that we talked about just before with the big wheel and the tricycle but there's the scene in room 237 room 237 right here on my t-shirt <laughs> uh, the scene when Jack Nicholson goes in the room and the woman gets out of the bathtub and mm. she's like like perfect woman and then he kisses her and then he, he she, she's like laughing and it's an old woman who's like all decomposed yeah, and she's scary. got
1: the <laughs> oh, that's scary right breaks me out but
2: also the scene that I like in that movie is in the bathroom in the gold room when the waiter spills the drink on uh, on Jack Torrance and, and he goes I know you you, you're Grady. You were the caretaker here. And then Grady says, no, sir, you are the caretaker. <laughs> yeah. You He's have always, always been. been the caretaker here. <gasps> what? Oh, it's so freaky. It's so great. Did you know about this movie? Okay. It got very mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, it's based on the book by Stephen King. And yeah. Stephen King didn't like the
1: movie. No, he actually wrote a draft of the screenplay. Kubrick never read it. No way. He they never didn't read it? They did get along very well. Apparently, in one of the scenes, I think, when Halloran is going to the Overlook Hotel, you can see a red VW Beetle that's been squished. That is the car that Stephen King had the uh, them drive on the way to Overlook Hotel. So that oh. was like a little subtle, screw you.
2: No way. This. Way. Yeah. But also about this film. Okay, it didn't win any Oscars, but it was nominated for two. I'm going to say this right now. The Shining was nominated for two Razzie awards what? crazy right it was it was best it was worst director yeah and worst actress for Shelley Duvall oh my god and yet it is a masterpiece of modern horror it's one next to the exorcist I think the scariest movie of all time
1: I agree and little Dan Lloyd did such a good job he was only five years old when they shot it uh he didn't even know it was a horror because <sighs> Kubrick told him that it was just just a drama and then he didn't see the completed film till he was 16 and then he finally saw what he was making can you imagine no you
2: finally get to see the movie you're like oh
1: oh that that's
2: the movie i made when i was a little kid
1: (laughs) well liam alexander from schmoville said what kubrick did with the shining was nothing short of sensational he was able to create such a creepy atmosphere yes instead of (laughs) making a straight out horror film he created a deep psychological film with an incredible incredible performance by Nicholson. I think he hits the nail on the head. That's exactly why it doesn't leave your head is because it's psychological. It's really terrifying.
2: It really is terrifying. And our friend Tyler Myers from Schmoville says, "'It's a very atmospheric, definitely atmospheric, and creepy film filled with extreme tension and iconic shots like Mm -hmm. the twins in the hallway." (gasps) We agree. Jack Nicholson gives an unsettling and haunting performance that has been going through a wide range of emotions that fit in very well with the tone of this terrifying yet brilliant film. Tyler Myers, I have to say to you, sir, you wrote this comment like you are an aspiring film critic yourself. I am very, very impressed with that. And then there's one more comment here from our friend Tyler Moore in Schmoville. This is not so much a comment. This one is a request. Okay. He says, I really hope Alicia says, here's Johnny in her amazing Australian accent.
1: Oh, in my Australian accent? Yes. So,
2: okay. okay, On three.
1: It's not going to be very scary. Two, one. Here's Johnny.
2: That sounds good to me.
1: <laughs> Tower <Tyler>
2: Moore. Scary. <laughs>
1: Not that scary at all. But you know, Kubrick made great movies, and then and he also made great
2: movie posters. And what
1: are we calling this segment now?
2: We're calling it the big picture.
1: We came up with a title, yes. and to help us with this is the Pit Boss Ken up, Roll it, should take.
0: Some of the one-sheets for Stanley Kubrick's movies are just as unforgettable as the films themselves. Graphic designer Bill Gold, whose iconic posters also include Alien and Casablanca, designed this chilling one-sheet for a clockwork orange, in which Malcolm McDowell's sinister smile as the dagger-bearing Alex provided a glimpse of the disturbing violence moviegoers were about to see. More minimal, but even more terrifying, was this one-sheet for The Shining, designed by the legendary Sal Bass. Despite his iconic work on one-sheets for the likes of Vertigo and Anatomy of a Murder, Kubrick made Bass go through at least 300 versions of The Shining until he finally settled on this haunting image. And back in the late 1960s, when the space race was in full swing, what college dorm room wall was graced with this breathtaking one-sheet featuring the giant space station from 2001, A Space Odyssey, painted by artist Robert McCall? No wonder they called it the ultimate trip
1: oh i love those movie posters uh clockwork orange is my favorite of those yeah clockwork Orange. i
2: I just remember seeing the, the movie poster for the shining in in the newspapers and seeing that image of that face that horrified face i mean is it is it danny lloyd is it jack torrance i mean it's just it's just really really terrifying but we just want to take a second right now tell all our friends watching that we need your help It's very, very important. Please go to iTunes and review us rate us. We need that to survive so we can come back every week with profiles. Yes. Malone and I, we love movies. We know you do too. Mm-hmm. We have so many great people we want to talk about. A lot of them suggested by you. Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino. I
1: cannot wait. Can't
2: wait for those.
1: And make sure you subscribe to YouTube slash no Podcast. That's where you can find all the podcasts from the SchmoesNo network. There's some good ones there.
2: There's some good ones. Yeah, they're great.
1: Alright, keeping going with our next segment we're calling
2: The Player
1: which is this week it's all about best characters
2: the best Cooper characters
1: so let's start with Jack Torrance
2: let's start with Jack Torrance from
1: The Shining he is one of the best he is one of the best because of Nicholson I say because Nicholson played him so well just that unraveling slowly and I like what what's happening inside his mind is also kind of happening in the hotel at the same time at
4: the
2: same time very clever see the interesting thing about The Shining I forgot to mention this before is that for the longest time, you really feel like this, this could be just all in his mind. Yeah. But here's where you realize that it's not. When he's locked up in the storage room and Grady's on the other side of the door telling him he has to take care of the problem, telling him he has to get rid of his wife, then you hear somebody unlock the door. Mm. Who? Was it? I just got the chills just talking about that right now.
1: God. Now yeah. some
2: people say that that yes, it that, that, that it was a genuinely haunted hotel. Other people say that it was Danny who unlocked the door. <sighs> Either way, it is chilling. But. Jack Nicholson was so great as Jack Torrance that for a few years, it was hard to see him as anything else. And it wasn't until 1983 with Terms of Endearment mm. when he won Best Supporting Actor that people finally got past Jack Torrance.
1: Yeah, and Stephen King didn't like his casting either. Ah, oh, I mean, what's not to like? He's perfect. Come on, Stephen. Another character I love is Alex DeLarge from uh, The Clockwork Copper Orange. Orange. Yep. He loves a bit of the old violence with his milk and his eggy wigs. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell is so brilliant in this character i mean he is a psychopath alex yes he is violent he enjoys a bit of rape and murder somehow you still feel for him when he's trying to be changed and i think that character shows how people can't always be changed
4: but
2: also it shows how malcolm mcdowell's performance as alex he's charming he's irresistible Mm -hmm. he's persuasive yeah which makes him yeah very charismatic that's what makes him so such a complex character because he is there's so many things to not like about him, yeah. Yet you can't help but root for yeah, him. Yeah, you
1: feel empathy for him when he's being changed with the girl. Yeah, the eye things.
2: Well, you also feel a lot of empathy for our number one Cooper character, which isn't even a human being. This is the Hal Nine Thousand computer from 2001: A Space Odyssey. Many argue, rightfully so, that Hal. Is the most human character in that film, mm-hmm. and of course we realize that at the point when Dave Bowman is is um, is deactivating his logic yeah. circuit, and he starts saying, "I'm
1: afraid," "I'm
2: afraid,"
1: "I'm afraid," "I'm
2: afraid." <laughs> My mind is going. And he starts to <"D-C-D-C-> <laughs> so go, creepy. But yeah, it's <laughs> very creepy. And here's this film where all the human characters after the Dawn of Man sequence are very detached. They're very mechanical, just like the technology that they have become consumed by. Mm-hmm. Yet this mechanical, artificial, intelligent character displays more humanity than anyone else.
1: I think it's really interesting how he's just a, a sort of red eye. And then a very calm voice but you attribute what he's thinking throughout the film and it starts out being quite reassuring someone's always watching you looking after you he's always very calm doesn't have that annoying human emotions right then towards the end it becomes terrifying that he has complete control of the ship
2: every time I watch this movie every time I watch 2001 okay the scene when Dave and Frank are in the pod and they, they turned off all the sounds. So the lip reading? The lip reading. Every single time I see that movie on the big screen, and that's a lot because whenever it's playing on the big screen, I'll stop what <laughs> I'm doing to go see it. But every single time you hear the audience go, oh, oh
1: uh-oh. No. how's on to onto them. How's
2: onto them and then it breaks for an intermission oh. and then comes back and all hell breaks loose and Jupiter beyond the infinity. But Alicia Malone, it's time to test your real knowledge. Uh, I- your real knowledge. How quiz much do you show. really know Stanley Kubrick? Shatee, can we get some uh, some quiz show music going on here? No,
1: nah, no quiz show music, no quiz which show I'm music. happy about because it, uh, it's scary. But actually, actually we, we're
2: going to hold off on quiz show for a second because, because
1: something so exciting.
2: we are very, very excited to join us on Profiles today. Matthew Modine from Full Metal Jacket played Private Joker. You're on with Alicia and Scott. It is so great. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you on the show.
5: It's my pleasure. How are you guys doing today?
2: We're really doing
1: great. Good. So excited to talk to you. Now, can you first kick things off with talking about your app that you have made about the making of Full Metal Jacket? I love the sound of this.
5: Well, it's it, well, first of all, you should tell everybody that's available on iTunes and yes. it's for a, an, an iPad. It's a beautiful... Uh, a rendition of the book that was that was a limited edition book that came out several years ago uh, there were there were only one of twenty thousand of those books made with wow. a metal cover and I was approached by a young guy <clears throat> excuse me from apple computers uh, arguably a real genius, not a genius working at the genius bar, but a real genius <laughs> that was <working> under, <laughs> under the tutelage of Steve Jobs <clears throat> who asked me what if I could make your book into an app? Yeah. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'll take all the photographs, everything that you have, any letters that Stanley wrote you, any, you know, personal items from the time, and uh, <clears throat> do high, high-res scans of them, and then I'll have you record the book, and then we'll have somebody record an original score for the for the app, and we'll, we'll create sound effects and, and create something that's never been done before, create a, a very deeply immersive app.
1: Well, I to which has get now it. been
5: yeah. which has now been called an appumentary. And, oh, that's um, excellent! I love that word. <laughs> and and the goal was always to create something that would be of of Stanley Kubrick's uh, quality of, of of his standard of excellence. And and I I really believe that everybody involved with the making of the app accomplished that. Well,
2: that, it sounds fantastic, and you know, just I know everyone listening and watching uh, profiles today is just it's going to be right up their alley. But I just want to flash back to to the beginning of your Full Metal Jacket experience. You know, a how did you come to be cast in this movie, and what was your first impression of Stanley Cooper when you met him?
5: Well, it was kind of by accident. I talk about it in the book and in the app uh, that I'm. I, I was at a restaurant with a friend of mine, David Alan Greer, a really wonderful, talented uh, comedian and actor, and <clears throat> there was an actor sitting opposite me in the restaurant who appeared to be kind of cursing directly in my direction, calling me names, and, and I said to David, I said, either this guy's an actor learning his lines or he's got Tourette. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's looking at me, calling me, uh, you know, calling me names right to my face, and, and he looked over his shoulder, he goes, oh, that's Val Kilmer. He's a really nice guy. So he got up and he went over and he started talking to Val, and <clears throat> David waved me over and said, Karina, I'll introduce you to Val. I said, hey, my name's Matthew. And he goes, yeah, I know who you are. I'm sick of you. <laughs> and apparently he'd, he'd been up auditioning for many of the films that I had, I had done, and, and now he'd heard that I was doing Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, which, of course, I didn't know anything about. You had to audition for Stanley. You had to send him a VHS tape. Uh, with a scene of your work and <clears throat> I hadn't done that and obviously Val had oh, excuse me I've got a frog in my throat
4: <laughs> yes.
5: and and uh, of course the long story short was when, I've, when I left the restaurant I called up my agent and asked him if he knew anything about it and he said he didn't and I said well you know Alan Parker is editing Birdie in London right now we could call him and have him send over a scene and We'll call Warner Brothers and ask them to send a scene from, from Vision Quest or send him the movie. And about, I don't know, less than a month later, I received a script in the mail from Stanley Kubrick yeah. asking me if I'd be in his movie. So in many ways, Bell Kemmerer may be responsible for my having got the part in the film
2: it's to pay it forward
1: that's <laughs> incredible and it had been seven years since Kubrick made The Shining before Full Metal Jacket do you know why he waited so long in between films?
5: Um, I think he was always looking for good material there, there may have been and I'm sure there were several projects that he he considered in between Full Metal Jacket mm. and The Shining because um, he was always working on something uh, but but this, this, I mean, he wanted to make uh, Eyes Wide Shut for for a couple decades. Wow! <laughs> so, um, and and I think Michael Hare, the man who wrote the, the the narration in Apocalypse Now, and who wrote the screenplay for Full Metal Jacket, he originally <clears throat> met Stanley to talk about writing Eyes Wide Shut. It was it was well before Full Metal Jacket, right. so wow. that, that could have easily Full Metal Jacket may have may have become the the last film that he ever made. Uh, but um, fortunately for me, I had the, the, the pleasure of working with him, yeah. and, and it was an extraordinary experience. You asked me what it was like when we first met, and everybody had an opinion about Stanley, and there'd been so many books that were written about him, and I got tired of people telling me stories about him and how they knew him, and he did this and he did that. He was he was terrified of flying. He had airplanes fly over his house to spray for mosquitoes. <laughs> um he he wore a football helmet when he drove a car. I mean, all these were kind of ridiculous stories that you heard about him. <clears throat> so I made a decision that I wasn't going to listen to them anymore, and I wasn't going to read anything about else about him, and just go meet him. And of course, when I met him, he was one of the most congenial, uh, bright, uh, enthusiastic, uh, loving fathers I'd ever met. Oh, I mean, wow. his, his love for for his children and for his animals was was. Uh, extraordinary and what he did what i say is that that he was the most independent filmmaker i've ever had the pleasure of working Mm. with that he created an environment for himself uh where he could make his films over the period of time that he did he didn't Mm -hmm. live an extravagant lifestyle so he didn't have you know a a multi-million dollar mansion in beverly hills that he had to, to to do upkeep on and pay taxes on he lived Way outside of 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 uh, the center of England, where he could concentrate on his work and 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 be passionate about the thing that he was passionate about, you know, to deeply immerse himself in in the experience of filmmaking. Um, He was very social, you know. He he'd go out and see plays sometimes, but but where he was most social because he was so far away from everybody was on the telephone, and, and he's sort of famous for these historic. Ten-hour conversations on the telephone.
2: Wow, ten hours. Um,
5: I, I, I had I had several of those kind of sessions, and you know, you talked about everything from the war to, you know, who was going to pitch next year for the Yankees. Oh, that's
2: great. <laughs> so when when you were filming Full Metal Jacket, and you you came to a point during your performance when you just had doubts about how you were going to play Private Joker. How mm-hmm. did how did Stanley Kubrick uh, give you words of wisdom and inspiration and direction, really.
5: Well, all of his directions were very simple. You know, for instance when we were walking into the city of Hue uh, through the palm trees and smoke and things like that, he came over to me and he said, "Act scared," <laughs> um, which was, you know, I mean, it's it's very direct, it's very simple yeah. and to the point, and that is in fact exactly what was the the appropriate direction to give to a young actor was to act scared um, his, it, a criticism of acting, of a, of a performance in a scene might be, uh, Matthew, you're not going to do it that way, are you?
4: Um,
5: <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, again, it's very direct and you go, okay, he didn't like that. I'll have to try something else, try mm-hmm. a different approach. Um, but the, the best advice that I got from him when, when I was having that day out was, because I, I, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to play the part. And he said look i don't want you to play anything i just want you to be yourself right and as he drove off and left me standing there thinking and and making notes in my diary what i wrote down was i know that the important part of, of his sentence was to be
4: mm. and
5: because this is this is the journey that every artist has it's it's what will make your radio program different than someone else's is when you embrace who you are
4: yeah
5: and and be yourself you know try being yourself because everybody else is taken yeah you know the,
2: well that's the, the great expression. advice that is really yeah, great advice,
1: good advice. <laughs> so try trying yeah. to do
5: that i mean there's there's nobody there and, and people discover it earlier than other people in their lives i mean jack nicholson is somebody who who was very comfortable with who Jack Nicholson was mm-hmm. from a very early age, and it's it's we we love him for who he is, and his you know the quality of his performances. He's not trying to be Marlon Brando. He's not trying to be James Dean. He's not trying to be somebody else. He's Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. and you can look across the 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 history of famous people that are comfortable with who they are and they be themselves, and we you know we know who they are. Whether whether it's any of those actors I just mentioned or John Huston, you know, as a director, that he, he wasn't trying to make movies like somebody else. He was trying to tell stories that were, that were important and passionate to, to him.
1: Mm. Well, our Lee Ermey, hopefully he wasn't like that all the time because he was terrifying. <laughs> Is it true that you didn't meet him into well into the shoot till you were about to start no, shooting?
5: I, no, I don't know how that rumor got started right. because Lee Ermey was hired as a technical advisor on the film. And because we shot Vietnam before we shot Boot Camp, oh. uh, right. Leon was there from, from the get-go. He was there as I was. I was, I was there uh, months before we started shooting to, to, to start preparing, and and uh, so was Lee. So Lee, Lee was there from the beginning, and Lee always always said that this part was written for him, and there was another actor that was cast, uh, a wonderful actor named Tim Pulcheri, who becomes, later on in the film, the door gunner who's shooting uh, women and children. Oh, How do you, how do you yeah. shoot women and children? Easy, you just don't lead them as much, that mm-hmm. guy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that, that was
5: the man that was going to be the drill instructor. And, and uh, you know, when Stanley saw Lee Army on tape auditioning the, the guys that were going to be the extras and heard the things that came out of his mouth and saw, the, because he was, he wasn't playing, he was. It was an example of being mm. um, that Lee army was, was that person, and Whoa. he wasn't play, playing the part. And, and uh, so he became the drill instructor.
2: Whoa. Well, well, another great scene in the film is, is in the latrine with Vincent D'Onofrio as Private Pyle. Uh, what, uh, what an amazing performance from, from Vincent D'Onofrio. Just tell us about working with him and, of course, filming that scene in particular. It's just one of the most haunting uh, uh, scenes in the entire movie.
5: Yeah, we 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 worked on that quite a bit, you know, and and talked about it. That that what are the right words to say in a circumstance like that? Mm. And we we actually, I mean, everybody thinks that everything with Stanley Kubrick's films was was really laid out and and you know like a, like a piece of Beethoven sheet music, but it wasn't. There was uh, there was always room for discovery and rewriting, and um, so we worked on that scene and. And through improvisation, you know, me, like Stanley saying, what would you do in a situation like this? And then we'd start to, you know, improvise the scene. And, and and Stanley kind of wonderfully said, it's the right sentiment. It's just too many words. So how do we reduce that? How do we get it down to a reduction? Mm. And I'd say this about, about most artists like Stanley Kubrick or Picasso or Matisse, Gauguin, that in the in the end, ends of their careers, or later on in their careers, when they'd really mastered their art, it was always about reduction. It was about the line. You know, it was about how do you make a stroke on a painting and, and make, it, make it pure. And, and so when you watch Full Metal Jacket, it is absolutely uh, a film with, with such simplicity. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's just, it's just, it's so simple. It's just the, the work of a, of a master filmmaker. And, and that story, that film, that same script put in someone else's hands might come off as a kind of pro-film, pro pro-war film, pro film, a propaganda film, something that made war look romantic, something that made it look kind of appealing. And, and uh, with Stanley, by not really commenting on anything, but just presenting images and presenting, uh, presenting a story, uh, it, it, that's the work of a master.
2: It's a great perspective. Yeah, really
1: great it also perspective. means it's quite timeless as well. So what would you say your favorite memories of working with Kubrick? And do you have a favorite Kubrick film, maybe outside of Full Metal Jacket?
5: Yeah, I really love Paths of Glory and and The Killing, the mm-hmm. the racetrack First, movie. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Doctor Doctor Strange absolutely. I mean, it's 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 just a, it's just brilliant. It's just it's just brilliant. Well, and, Um. Uh. But what is my favorite Stanley Kubrick story? Oh, just, yeah, just like a,
2: any
1: memories you have that. You like a, like a
2: special memory that you have. Maybe he bought you a cup of coffee and put two sugars <laughs> in it. Who knows. <laughs>
5: I think you know now that he's passed away I'm going to I'm going to expose him and say that I used to go over to his house and watch movies oh, uh, right. because he had a he had a projector so he'd order the movies from a studio and they'd send him the, the, the reels and he didn't want to hire a projectionist to do the reel changes so we'd watch them one reel at a time uh-huh. which was wonderful because we could watch a reel and then discuss it and, and try to anticipate what was going to come in the next reel so it, the discussion the discussion between reels was really really quite extraordinary and fun mm-hmm. and but at those screenings there was there was uh, he had his big old uh labrador retriever and and uh the dog quite often passed wind Um, Oh, jeez. The the question always was, was it the dog passing man or was it Stanley? (laughs) 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 Because he was was always blaming the dog. Well, we got to tell
2: you, you know, coming from two film geeks like me and Alicia, Um, getting the chance to watch movies with Stanley Kubrick must have been really, really cool. I would have loved to do that. Well, listen, we're we're really grateful for your time and generosity and sharing these stories and Matthew Modine, thanks so much for joining us and everyone, please go to iTunes and check out the, the, uh, what was the we called it an app,
1: uh, appumentary, appumentary, appumentary yeah.
2: on full metal jacket. It is a doozy. You'll want to check it out. Matthew, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
1: you.
5: A pleasure. A pleasure speaking with you both.
2: Thank you. Have a great day. Wow,
1: that was cool. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall and watching movies with Stanley Kubrick?
2: That is that is film one hundred and one in the extreme. Can you imagine? Like, could have been anything. You could have watched like Star Wars or something. Well,
1: funnily enough, when Kubrick broke down his favorite movies, amongst ones like A Razorhead, were or was uh, White Men Can't Jump.
2: Stanley Cooper liked what? See, you never know. Never know. You never know what a man's going to like. That's but, okay, we we're going to hit on quiz show. Oh, okay. Okay, now right. let's now test we'll our knowledge. Okay, you okay. go first. You go first.
1: Okay, okay. All right. Um, so. Yes. Mr. Metz.
2: Yes, Miss Malone.
1: <laughs> what movie did Kubrick have the cast of The Shining watch in preparation for that film? Okay. So which of these movies? Yes. Was it Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Was it... Invasion of the Body Snatchers, was it Eraserhead, or Nosferatu? Which of those films do you think he made the cast watch to prepare themselves?
2: Uh, I'm gonna say Texas Chainsaw.
4: No! No!
1: Eraserhead.
2: Eraserhead? What, how?
1: You you (laughs) love David Lynch.
2: Well, that's good to know. Yeah. That is really good to know. Okay, my question for you, my friend, is which of the following actors Were not, I repeat, not considered to play the part of Jack Torrance in The Shining.
1: Oh gosh! Okay.
2: Was it Robert De Niro? Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Was it Robin Williams? Mm Mm-hmm. Was it Al Pacino? Yep. Or was it Harrison Ford?
1: Robin Williams.
2: Al Pacino.
1: Al Pacino! Al
2: Pacino was, was not considered. Not, but
1: Robin Williams was? Robin
2: Williams was. Wow. And he thought he would he would have been too funny. It was okay. like, I guess, a little too early. It's too close to when he's doing Mork and Mindy. It's
1: pre-one-hour photo, yeah. I,
2: I would have uh, been been interesting to see Harrison Ford in that role. Although, let's face it. You cannot top Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance.
1: Oh, you cannot at all. All right. So, do we have time for one more? We do have time for our more. next five, okay. Fast Five. Fast Five. Number three is, to take... Coming. It's coming.
2: Coming with number 3 on our f- top fast
4: 5. <laughs> there we
2: go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs>
4: clockwork
2: orange boy that's just hearing that music and hearing what's going on in that scene it's all you really need to to hear to just hit home Mm. the power now this is number three on our list but this is actually your personal number one favorite Stanley Kubrick movie Alicia Malone I gotta know why
1: I know this would surprise quite a few people because I'm very nice. You very are very lovely, nice. <laughs> but I like a film that disturbs me. I'm going to put it out there. I like a film that makes me think and makes me feel something. And Clockwork Orange is definitely disturbing. The way it looks at psychiatry and violent youths and set in dystopian London. Alex DeLarge is as we said before one of the scariest characters created on screen yeah. and I was rattled after seeing the film for the first time I didn't know if I liked it or not then when I went back and watched it again I really enjoyed it I love the dialogue too mm-hmm. so saying for the eggy wegs and I viddy this and it's just a whole different world
2: and that he followed 2001 a space odyssey with a movie like clockwork orange yeah, I mean, 1971 could the, could the movies have been those two movies have been any more different Mm-mm. and that goes back to what we were saying at the top of the show that he would just he would take chances and do completely different films this one was extremely extremely controversial mm-hmm. and there were so many copycat crimes at the time and threats to kubrick's family mm. that after 61 weeks of playing in in uk cinemas in, in england that Stanley Cooper pulled that movie and it was not shown in public in the UK until 2000 after he died.
1: That's his power.
2: That is... That, that he had the power yeah to pull the movie yet it was still second to My Fair Lady as the highest grossing movie in Warner Brothers history
1: yeah and he also told Warner Brothers exactly how he wanted the film to be marketed and they followed his wishes which really paid off I love that during filming Stanley and Malcolm became really close they used to play ping pong together Malcolm says he always used to win but then after filming Malcolm thought he had a friend for life but uh, Stanley never contacted him again
2: that's You make a movie like that and you bond with someone in that way. You have
1: to feel safe to go that dark.
2: And to just, to just like cut it off. Clean break, move on, never see or hear from the person again. Mm-hmm. After making a movie like that, well, you, you have the movie to show for your relationship. Exactly.
1: Nominated for four Oscars, but what does Schmoville say about it?
2: Schmoville says, our friend Douglas Scarbarrow says, Copperwork Orange is basically three short films in one, since all three acts are very different. Very, very good point, Douglas. Yeah. It is a film that affected me very deeply, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Neither could we, and neither could she. <laughs>
1: no, I could not stop thinking about it. And it is a film that I like to revisit visit quite often. It's a movie that Kubrick wasn't even planning to make because he was set on his Napoleon film.
2: Oh, wow. And
1: he did so much research for that movie. You could have seen that in the LACMA exhibit that he had bookcases full of Napoleon books and he had 25,000 index cards with research. He never got to make it, but I'm glad he made Clockwork Orange.
2: I am too. And I'm also glad he made The Shining because yes. like Clockwork Orange... And like 2001, The Shining is a film that has inspired not just filmmakers, but film geeks and nerds like you and me, Alicia Malone, mm-hmm. to read into these movies, read into them so much to find hidden meanings that a filmmaker named Rodney Asher went ahead and made a movie called Room 237, Fantastic. which is the great, which is the room in the Overlook Hotel where Jack Nicholson sees the old woman, and this is an extraordinary movie about the power of movies and subtext that inspired five different people to come up with their own conspiracy theories about what The Shining was really about. Joining us on the phone right now, we are thrilled to have Rodney Asher, the director of Room 237. Rodney, thanks for joining us on Profiles with Scott and Alicia.
3: Sure thing,
1: good to talk to you guys. So nice to talk to you. I saw Room 237 at uh, Sundance. Me too. And I was so amazed by it. I couldn't believe that people read into The Shining so much. Why do you think The Shining, over all the other Kubrick movies, gets this kind of uh, obsession about it?
3: Well, because it's the one with the most hidden secrets. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think, you know, at least as much as some of the others, It's such a perfect, you know, kind of Venn diagram of, um, you know, art in entertainment. You know, um, just on the surface, it works as a tremendously successful, involving, and entertaining horror movie. But Mm. there are so many loose ends, um, you know, you find yourself driven to revisit it again and again just to figure it out.
2: Well, how did you come to find the five people interviewed for Room 237 and... In addition to how did you find them? Why did you restrain from showing them on camera? Because you just hear their voices. You never actually see who these people are.
3: Well, me and uh, Tim Kirk, who produced the film, spent I don't know eight months or so, you know, researching as many of these ideas as we could. Um, though they weren't all in place when we started the film. You know, the the two that the two that you know we had, you know, sort of lined up, you know, and that we saw as you know absolutely mandatory at the get go were Bill Blakemore. Kind of got the ball rolling in the '80s when he wrote his article, um, you know, that was syndicated in American newspapers about um, the Native American theory. And then Jay Widener who talked about, um, you know, all the allusions to the moon landing, you know, on a. Um, we came across an essay that he had written online. So, you know, at the time since, you know, we um, started making two, three, seven, he started making his own DVDs, and he's got two, at least two of them done, and a third was, uh, and, and a third is on its way. Mm. Wow. <laughs> um, and then, you know, from there, one person kind of led to another, and, you know, there were more than we could ever hope to get in. Mm. So we tried to, you know, pick people who either had different backgrounds or had wildly different ideas that might kind of complement, um, you know, the ones that were already inside. Um, the author, actually, the author, Jonathan Leatham, had written a lot, has written a lot about Stanley Kubrick, though actually very little about The Shining. And when I met him at a book reading, um, you know, I was hoping he might be interested in participating or might have some interesting thoughts, and what he wound up doing was pointing me towards the guy, uh, John Phil Ryan, who had orchestrated a forwards-backwards projection um, (laughs) at a a theater in Brooklyn.
2: Really crazy.
1: Really crazy. It's so amazing what people do to try and find these secrets inside The Shining. Were there people that you considered, but then you thought, oh, they're a little too crazy, I can't include
3: them? Well, I mean, crazy is a, a a, a tricky word in the context. <laughs> yeah. the movie itself is cra- is a crazy is, is a crazy horror movie about crazy people driven mm-hmm. to obsession so I mean just on the surface of the original film you know there's some pretty challenging far-up material before you get into the subtext many of you know which is you know a lot of which was you know coming from you know Freudian um, Like a Freudian text on you know the um, meaning of fairy tales. So
4: Mm.
3: you know, being too outrageous wouldn't have been a problem. There there were a couple I couldn't understand, um, (laughs) (laughs) and and, and some that were maybe too involved, and and there were two you know maybe big fish that got away. You know, there's this guy in the UK, Rob Ager, um, who has a website where. Um, he principally focuses on Kubrick films, but he's talked about some others, and of the Kubrick films, you know, he's talked at the most length about The Shining, and, you know, he goes into a detail that shames you know, anything that, we, that, that we're able to do in Room 237. Um, and then, of course, there was the mastermind, um, you know, whose who's writing inspired the forwards-backwards um, um, projection and although I wasn't able to get him for the film I took tremendous satisfaction out of being able to coerce him into doing a commentary track for the DVD.
2: Oh, great. Cool. That is excellent. But I would love to know, I would love to know what reaction you got from the Kubrick estate after Room 237 a, when it was shown at Sundance, but more when it was released and it was out there and people could really see it. Like did anyone from the Kubrick estate call you and go, "Dude, <laughs>
3: Well, you know, I never talked to anyone from the state directly. You know, when the, um, um, certainly there have been interviews, you know, where Jan Harlan has been, you know, fairly critical about that. Um, you know, which is, which which is fair. You know, if everybody is, if everybody in our film looks at The Shining differently, certainly everybody, you know, is going to look at 237 differently, and his experience is going to be radically different than a, a, a general member of the audience. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I never had too many in depth conversations with anyone out there. I mean, at the, at the outset of this, you know, when we were, when me and Tim were trying to get our heads around, you know, what was the tack we were going to take with this, you know, there were ideas of do we want to talk to people who worked in the, ca- do we want to talk to members of the cast and crew? Do we want to, you know, find Diane Johnson and, and talk about how the script came to be? But ultimately, we decided to keep the focus. Really, really concentrated on the audience, you know, and not on the people behind the scenes. So, um, you know, from the get-go, um, you know, we were kind of steering away from um, the the original cast and crew.
1: Well, it's it's so interesting with The Shining because I mean, we hear so often that Kubrick is a perfectionist that nothing in his films is not there without reason. Correct, but yeah. there are so many lapses in continuity with The Shining. What do you think? Do you think they're
3: deliberate? Well, I mean, the simplest way to to explain it is that he had other priorities.
4: Mm.
3: You know, you One could say, you know, that priority was on composition or on performance or something else, and that kind of detail, you know, was of less interest. Um, Personally, I'm very attracted to the idea, you know, that they may be something kind of like um, atonal notes that Mm. are supposed to make you feel subtly uncomfortable. Mm. Um, You know, that something's wrong, but we're not sure exactly what from shot to shot. Um, Not that I've... um, um, you know, been able to confirm or deny that, mm. you know, in, in, in any concrete way. But I find that idea,
4: you know, very, very attractive. It is.
2: Well, well, it one conspiracy theory that's explored in Room 237, and and uh, Alicia is wearing a T-shirt that sort of backs that up. Right now, uh, she's wearing an Apollo, uh, the Apollo 11 shirt that Danny wore in the movie. Awesome. Is that The Shining contained all these clues about how Kubrick faked the moon landing? And this past summer at the LA Film Festival, there was a stage reading for a Stephanie Folsom's screenplay. It's called 1969: A Space Odyssey, or How Kubrick Learned to Stop Worrying and land on the moon. And I was wondering if you had a chance to go to that reading or, or hear about the screenplay and and just your thoughts about what uh, the, the, the conspiracy theories that people are taking to that level because of a movie like The Shining.
3: Well, I mean that one is too that, that, that one is so juicy. I, I'm, I, I, you know it makes perfect sense to me that I'm not the only person. To have, re- to, to have read about that theory and found it really <laughs> with Um and actually I, I think that I heard that there was another um, you know narrative film um, on the same idea um, one that we mm-hmm. have already shot with um, let's get the actor's name he was in um, The City of Lost Children and Hellboy um, oh uh,
2: uh, what's his name uh, Ron Perlman yeah,
3: that yeah. I, I thought that I had read that Somebody had shot a film, uh, you know, on the subject that he was in. Oh, I'm going to have to um, check that out on and IMDb. And also a music video by Imagine Dragons that um, stages it. Um, they also get into Paul is Dead imagery, which is, oh. which is kind of fun. Paul is um, Dead. But, I'm a
2: know, big Beatles fan, so you're speaking my <laughs> language now. <laughs> All right. Well,
3: I've got to check out the video, which, bizarrely enough, a, a friend of mine that I know from um, The World of Funny or Die and some comedy videos that I used to do um, plays Jimmy Kubrick with Hertford in that one.
2: Wow. Well, well. listen, we, we uh, are, are thrilled to have you on the show today, and you can watch Room 237. It's on iTunes, it's also on Netflix. Uh, that's where I watched it just recently. So, absolutely, if you're watching this Profiles with Malona Man special on Stanley Kubrick, you have to see Room 237. Fascinating. It'll blow your mind, yeah. rock your world. And, Rodney, you've rocked ours. Thank you so much for calling in. We Thank really you. appreciate your time
3: sure thing great to talk to you
2: great thanks to talk so with much. you thanks so much
1: yeah i remember seeing that at sundance like yeah. i said and i was just so fascinated by it all the hidden clues in there are they real some seem to make sense some are just so insane
2: their arguments are valid yeah i mean they're crazy but they back it up they, they do. back it up They've
1: really studied that film.
2: and you just can't argue against it because of the arguments that these people are making in the film exactly. but i just also love that a movie that first of all, you saw it at Sundance. Yeah. Which is a great place to see a movie like yes. that. But that a movie about a movie, that you know, movies just inspire people in so many different ways. Like you said, you'd like disturbing movies because it moves you. It makes me feel something. It makes you feel something. And mm-hmm. it made these five people feel something too. So much. But then there are some movies from Stanley Kubrick that are Little overrated
1: maybe don't make us feel so good
2: and make us uh maybe they're a little uh, just plain awful well,
1: maybe they're underrated
2: maybe they're underrated but this is what we call the, the good, good the, the bad and the ugly. ugly and
1: i think we are opposite on the first two i so think we are what, what would you say is your underrated
2: my underrated stanley kubrick movie no question is eyes wide shut stanley kubrick's final me. film Whoa, okay, wait a minute. We're usually on the same page here, Alicia (laughs) Malone. Okay, tell me why you like it. Well, first of all, Eyes Wide Shut is the first movie I ever reviewed, and that was a game changer for me. That changed the course of my life. A Stanley Kubrick movie, his last film, changed the course of my life. So for that, I am grateful for it. Mm -hmm. Not a perfect film, and I feel like if he had lived long enough to see the release of it because he died like three or four months before it came out i feel like he would have tweaked it a little more maybe cut out some time because mm. even after 2001 came out the day after its new york premiere of 2001 stanley cooper cut 17 minutes from that movie and i i think maybe that's why it, it's your overrated
1: yeah it's my overrated film i like it but i have a feeling that people love this film because it's made by kubrick Okay, if it fair. was made by anyone else, they wouldn't love it so much. Why do you think so? I just think it's long. It, it is long. It's like it's a 90-minute movie stretched out to two and a half hours. And for an erotic film, it's not very sexy.
2: Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that if Eyes Wide Shut had come out in let's say 1971 versus 1999, mm. mm-hmm. do you think it would have been more relevant and it would have been a little more like convincingly erotic?
1: Well, it's interesting to hear that he was planning on making that before Full Metal Jacket. I think so. I think so. I think it would have been better. But my underrated is your overrated. Lolita. Lolita, <laughs> <Well>,
2: great. <laughs> why I is like it like Lolita? I, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I thought it was fine. I guess I guess in the analysis of Stanley Kubrick movies, it's not one that I will go back to. It's not one that I will hold up to a certain standard. Uh, Peter Sellers is great in the film. Yeah, he and- stole
1: the show for me and that's why I like it. I thought they captured the black tone of the book, but without making a straight remake.
2: Okay, can we at least agree on the ugly? I think we can. At, at least ugly in terms of Kubrick's yeah, role, because there's, there, there there's is no, no
4: terrible film. There's no Kubrick.
2: bad Stanley Kubrick movie, but I think the one that I liked the least.
4: Yes. The, the least. one that
2: we liked the least was Barry, Barry Lyndon. Lyndon.
1: Three hours twenty-three minutes.
2: Talk about too long.
1: Too
4: long.
2: Okay, but it's a beautifully shot film. The way they shot you know, with natural light and all the candles and everything, the cinematography is breathtaking. Ryan O'Neill gives a fantastic performance, but it is tedious, and I hate to use the word because you could say this about other Kubrick movies, too, even though they're not true, but that it's boring.
1: Yeah. Well... What is not boring in your opinion? What is your right stuff, your favorite scene?
2: My favorite scene from any Kubrick movie comes from 2001 Space Odyssey. Well, there are two of them from 2001. One we've already talked about is when uh, David Bowman is deactivating HAL and he starts mm-hmm. losing his mind. But my favorite scene isn't so much a scene as it's a moment. Mm-hmm. It is the moment when the Moonwatcher ape, after killing the other ape with the bone at the watering hole in a fit of rage, Maybe in a fit of it uh, 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 just triumph. It's shock triumph. You don't know because he had never killed ape had never killed another ape before. It mm-hmm. sounds like a line from Planet of the Apes, <laughs> yeah, it but it does it's right. <laughs> don't have Planet of the Apes. Ape it has killed ape. It, he chucks the, the bone in the air, and just the this, this scream that slow motion. He just chucks the bone in the air, mm-hmm. and as the bone is falling, the cut to the space station that the weapon, the spy satellite, and four million years that. One weapon and another weapon go hand in hand. And what has really, really changed. And then you hear, Well,
1: save your thoughts. 2001 is coming. It might even be next. No, it's not. But our Fast Five number two favorite favorite movie is... Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Dr. Strangelove.
2: Or
4: how, how I, I learned, learned to stop, stop worrying, worrying and, and love, love the bomb.
1: 1964, <laughs> a satire. Very funny, also very scary.
2: Very scary, very shocking. This was the height of the cold war and this was the year after the movie failsafe came out Mm -hmm. which was a very dead serious depiction of what can go wrong with the bomb and now here's a movie that makes fun of it but is just as impactful for different reasons screenplay is sharp and smart and witty the performances are fantastic including
1: peter sellers all
2: three from peter sellers
1: i can walk walk. (laughs) he is brilliant and apparently during filming kubrick would just be on the laughing no one can make him laugh quite as much as peter sellers and you know kubrick does so many takes so peter sellers just kept amping it up and up and up and so he great. does a brilliant job some of the the uh, action in the war room and the dialogue especially in the war room that made me think of woody allen oh, Dimitri
2: Dimitri, you yeah, 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 he, he went a little funny in the head. Yeah, you know, how do you a little, think I feel? How do you think I feel about that it? That
1: reminds me of Woody Allen. Well,
2: I'm so, I know you're sorry, Dimitri. I'm sorry, too. <laughs> yeah. it's so, you, know, you could just watch that scene. It could just keep going. Uh-huh. But that movie came out on January 29th, 1964, was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, uh, Adapted Screenplay, mm-hmm. and of course, Peter Sellers. But what's significant, it was the first time that an actor had been nominated for lead actor for playing three different roles.
1: Interesting.
2: And they were all great.
1: It was supposed to end with a big pie fight and they actually shot this. But then in the end Kubrick thought it was a little too farcical. Made it a little too funny.
2: The the end is actually pretty appropriate. Yeah,
1: I think it definitely suits it. But uh, here's something that I'm sure you know because you love the Beatles. But the Beatles actually wanted to use a shot from Dr. Strangelove for one of their music videos. But Kubrick wrote them a letter because, you know, he was very, he wanted to make sure his films were preserved in the right way and used in the right way. So he wrote them a letter saying, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm going to say no because using a piece of footage from my movie makes it seem like I'm using stock footage for my movie and I don't want it to come across that. It could hurt the film.
2: Okay, let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. Here we are talking about Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) And, and again, if you've watched the other two profile shows we've done, I've mentioned that I am really obsessed with the Beatles, yes. with a capital O. Mm-hmm. And here you are telling me something, Alicia, that I did not you know didn't? about the Beatles. I didn't know that.
1: Hooray. Hooray. Mission accomplished.
2: Anytime I can learn something new about the Beatles makes it a great day indeed. So top it of, hats off to you alicia Especially thank you for that
1: beatles plus kubrick okay we asked Schmovel their thoughts on dr strangelove claudia rose weldon who always writes fantastic comments she said it gets every element of satire right, the caricatures of actual people, the mere absurdity of some of the decisions they make, and parodying a touchy subject, namely the way the world was in the 60s on the brink of nuclear war. Without it, I don't think we'd have Mel Brooks, any of the Cornetto trilogy, or the upcoming film The Interview. Very true.
2: Well, Liam Leo Grand, who has also been a regular uh, yeah, Schmoville, uh, Yes, uh, Dr. Strangelove is a masterpiece and the greatest satire black comedy ever created in film history peter sellers one of the greats playing three characters perfectly yes we agree perfectly seemed (laughs) challenging considering he was playing off the other screen legends george c scott yep sterling hayden james earl jones and many more but i can't believe but what but i believe what the film does perfectly is satire the cold war and war in general
1: it yeah it definitely does that and it still is funny today when you watch it
2: oh it's hilarious
1: Okay, hilarious. before we get to our number one, let's quickly run through some directors who we think have been inspired by Stanley Kubrick. Of course, many of them have. Many have. But one, three in particular that we think we can definitely see Kubrickian.
2: Very Kubrickian. It's Terrence Malick. Going to
1: it, Terrence Malick.
2: Terrence for sure. I mean, They're you watch both
1: reclusive.
2: Very reclusive.
1: They both make a film, you know, every once a decade. Maybe. Whenever they want to. Whenever they want. They have. Complete creative control.
2: Complete creative control. And also just the cinematography, the just letting scenes play out naturally, being shot beautifully. I would argue, we definitely argue that no one shot a movie like Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Well, no one shot a movie like Malik either. Look at Thin Red Line, Days of Heaven, and even just a couple of years ago with The Tree of Life, which was very, very much like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Who well, else?
1: When I saw Under the Skin, Ooh. that was the first thing I said was, Kubrick. Kubrick. It was directed by Jonathan Glazer. Mm-hmm. And I liked in this film that they used the long held shots, so just shots held for very long time. And then the slow cross dissolves, with, which Kubrick did a lot of. And when asked about the Kubrick tone of his film, Jonathan Glazer said, yeah, I picked his pockets, really. People say homage, but I probably stole his wallet.
2: Well, at least he fesses up. He
1: does have his own style, though, too.
2: No question about it. I mean, Sexy Beast* is a great movie. David Lynch. Mm. And you think about David Lynch is when you know, you know you're know you watching a David Lynch movie, like Blue Velvet, especially Mulholland Drive, which is just a masterpiece, one of the best movies of the of the of the, mm-hmm. the aughts, whatever they call the them. Noughties. The Yes, thank you. <laughs> but uh, but yes, the, David Lynch, I just feel like his style, while his own, feels very Kubrickian.
1: Mm, it does, definitely. And they both were admirers of each other.
2: That's true. That's
1: fantastic. Okay, that Mr. Matt, it is time for our final... Favorite Kubrick film in our Fast Five, Jete, hit the music.
2: Ah, yes. It
1: has to be. It has to be 2001, 2001, A Space Space Odyssey. Odyssey. I know this is your favorite. This is my
2: favorite. This is my favorite Kubrick movie. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Released on April 3rd, 1968, just three months sooner than one of my other favorite sci-fi movies of all time, Planet of the Apes. So talk about a great year for sci-fi. This is a movie, it took me a very, very long time to wrap my head around the film, what's going on in the movie, which is basically, it's the evolution of human consciousness. Mm-hmm. That the apes touch the monolith on the Dawn of Man sequence, yep. they gain consciousness, and then the monolith disappears, it's buried on the moon. Only if the, hum- the human humans, people mm-hmm. only when they uncover the monolith on the moon only when they can trace the beam to Jupiter go out to Jupiter to see the big monolith yep. only then will they be worthy of advancing to the next stage of their evolution which is what we see in the star child at the end of the movie
1: <sighs> get it you get, I get it? it i get it finally now. she gets it I yes i get it um this is all about of course human evolution as you mentioned Uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and it features some of the most brilliant special effects ever and it was very scientifically accurate of course Kubrick researched the hell out of it for a long time Uh, just recently you know there was a war between Samsung and Apple for their iPad and Samsung's tablet so in a countersuit between Samsung and Apple iPad one of their main arguments they were making was that the iPad was directly copied from 2001 Space Odyssey with the tablets that oh, they have yeah. on board the Discovery but I love how it's in different sections I just think it's so clever you can see so much into it people didn't get it when it came out what was it 241 people I walked think, out walked of the out, premiere including Rock Hudson and he says
2: can someone please tell me what this movie is about well you know listen it's not that's why these movies why so many of Kubrick's movies they're just so great because you you go back to them and you want to watch them over and over again mm. so that you get something else out of it amazingly this movie like a lot of his films got mixed reviews when it opened mm-hmm. the new york times called it somewhere between hypnotic and immensely boring oh. and pauline kale called it monumentally unimaginative
1: which i don't understand because i could see how you might call it boring maybe a little bit pretentious but not unimaginative no, it's, it's one of the most imaginative movies I've seen. Very
2: imaginative. Well anyway,
1: eventually it became the highest grossing film of nineteen sixty eight.
2: And it is still the ultimate trip. We hope you enjoyed the ultimate trip with us. Before we let you go, a couple of, of announcements. Mm-hmm. And December 2nd, if you love Stanley Kubrick, you're going to want to get the 10-disc Blu-ray box set, which has all of his movies from from Lolita on to Eyes Wide Shut, but it also has two extra Blu-ray DVDs full of all sorts of documentaries never before seen. I want it. It it comes with a 78-page hardbound book. This is coming on December 2nd, just in time for the holidays. For you film buffs, for us film buffs, we're going to have to get it for each other. Other, yeah. because that Christmas. would be the ultimate gift. Uh, also, if you love Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> do check out the website kubrickian.org. That's kubrickian.org run by Scott Sheckman. Big Kubrick buff, inspired by Eyes Wide Shut, just like I was. It's kubrickian.org. And again, if you're watching, we need your help. Please support Malone and Mance by rating us on iTunes. We need your comments, your reviews, your ratings. Please, please, please go to iTunes and rate Profiles with Malone and Mance. Yeah. Who do we have next week?
1: Next week, we're going big. One Mm -hmm. of our favorite filmmakers Martin Martin Scorsese Scorsese. that is going to be huge how do we choose five movies that we love of his I don't even understand but you might like to tell us what you love about Marty which films you love make sure you hit us yeah I know him (laughs) Marty we shared an elevator once he looked down the whole time anyway um you can join our Facebook page and leave your comments there and on YouTube below
2: well, that wraps up another fun episode of Profiles with Malone and Mance. Taking the sachet, what do we got? Oh,
1: thanks so much, Mobile. See you next time.
2: See you next time, Mobile.
0: From producers Christian Harloff, Mark Ellis, and the entire Schmo's No Network crew, we would like to thank you for listening to Profiles with Alicia Malone and Scott Mads. Special thanks to Kevin Undergaro and Maria Madunas, the author of Every Girl's Guide to Diet and Fitness, in stores now. Be sure to subscribe to Profiles on iTunes and rate and review the show. To get other Schmoes No Network episodes, movie news, and join the conversation, be sure to visit schmoesno.com. I'm the Pit Boss, and this has been a presentation of the Schmoes No Network.